This morning's scripture text reading comes from Psalm 119, verses 97 through 112. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Well, from the outset, I'll just say, if you can't tell by now, I've lost my voice. So I sound like a chain smoker, and then every now and then my voice will crack, and so I sound like I'm going through puberty. Plus, it's 130 degrees in here, so I just feel like, wow, this is the perfect environment for great gospel preaching. So I just ask that you'd be patient with me. We are spending our, our summary here working through the Psalms. We are now in the first Sunday in August, which means we are now on you know, we, we've crested the middle of July, and so we are now working our way down towards the abyss of winter here in Michigan. We only have five psalms to go before our fall sermon series will start, and this week we are in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is not just the longest of all the psalms, but is actually the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It is 176 verses, which is far longer than we are able to read in the service, so for this morning, we're going to look at just two stanzas in the very middle, verses 97 through 112. Now, the, the Psalm 119, there's actually a lot of intentionality that goes into the writing of the Psalm. It is a Hebrew acrostic, meaning each stanza starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's, you know, for us to go A, B, C, D, but in Hebrew, it's a different ordering. So a letter, and that begins in eight line, Stanza. So not only is this a very long psalm, it is also a very detailed psalm. There's a lot of thought and intentionality that went, in, went into the writing of this psalm. And when you get to each one of these eight-line stanzas, you'll, you certainly will see that there's a lot of different nuances and a lot of sort of minor points. But the overarching theme of Psalm 119 is the preciousness the value of God's word in our lives. It's not just saying that God's word is true, but he's saying that God's word is actually precious in our lives. So this is a great psalm. It has been loved by many people throughout the years. Augustine, who is the great African bishop, he actually thought this, this psalm was so great he would never preach a sermon on it because he thought whatever sermon he preached would detract from the beauty of what was already there. Thomas 
Manton, who was a Puritan, he took a very different approach. He thought this psalm was so great that he preached 158 sermons on this one psalm. So those 158 sermons are now compiled into a three-volume set. And so if you think, you know, Redeemer pastors go slowly through books of the Bible, I mean, compared to Thomas Manton, we're just lightweight, topical preachers. 158 sermons on this one psalm. So now, whether you think this psalm is so great, you should never preach on it, or it's so great that you should preach 158 sermons on it, that the, the central principle is the same. Many people, men and women throughout the history of the church, have loved Psalm 119. And if you were to start at the very beginning, going through Psalm 119, you would see that there's a number of terms that, yes, are a little bit different and referring to specific parts of God's Word, but essentially are all saying the same thing. So in this psalm, you'll see words like God's law, God's precepts, God's Word, and yes, of course, those are different words, but the, the general idea is that everything that God has said is for our good, and that everything that has been written down in this book, the Bible, God's Word, is for our good. And without God's Word in our life, we are simply lost people. Now, because Psalm 119 is so long, we're not going to be looking at specific verses like we so often do here at Redeemer, but instead we're just going to do a larger sermon on the concept of God's Word in our lives. And so here is the main point for this morning. The main point for this morning is that all people have a word. All people have a text that they are using to guide their life. All people have a foundation that they fall back on. All people have a grid, a filter, a system that they are using to make sense of the world. So feminism, communism, Christianity, atheism, materialism, Judaism, all of those are systems that people are using to provide clarity in this world. You see, you have some kind of filter for how you are understanding the purpose of your life, what's the purpose of suffering. You're using some kind of framework for how you are determining what is moral, what is right, what is wrong. All people have a framework, even a nihilist. A nihilist is someone who believes that there is no point to the world, and even a nihilist is still using some sort of grid for understanding the world. So all people have a view, And what happens is when you press into that view, you begin to see that there's actually a text to support that view. And so there's often very formal text. So the Communist Manifesto, if you are a communist, or if you are a postmodernist, you would read the French philosophers, people like Derrida. But then there would also be more casual text. And so you might just be reading the New York Times or what you scroll through on Instagram and TikTok. But the clear truth is that every worldview has a corresponding text, a corresponding word that goes along with it. And that word is designed to further support the worldview. And so the question then becomes, out of all these various texts and cultural words that we are hearing, which word should we actually listen to? Which word should you build your life upon? Now to answer that question, I have two points for us this morning. The the first point is will you listen 
to the very inconsistent word of the culture, or will you listen to Psalm 119, which is a consistent word from God? That is our second point. And so point one, the inconsistent word of the culture. Point number two, the consistent word from God. Let's start with point number one, an inconsistent cultural word. You know, the average Westerner today would say the Bible, which is God's word, is an outdated book written by religiously confused men that contains teaching on gender, sex, and science that is factually wrong, and now even worse, is actually very bigoted. If you were to talk to people 20 years ago, they would say, well, the Bible is wrong, it's just a myth, but nobody would say it is dangerous. But in 2022, many people are now saying that the Bible is actually dangerous, that it is the means of hate. So the Bible, therefore, should just be placed on the dusty shelves of history to be forgotten and never looked at again. And so what's happening is the cultural assumption is that modern day texts are always going to be better than texts that are old. C.S. Lewis has a, a wonderful term that he used called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, here's his definition. He writes, chronological snobbery is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. Here's what C.S. Lewis means by that. What he's saying is that every age has an outlook. And so from our outlook, we can look at previous generations and we can see so clearly what is wrong with generations that have come before us. And so we can look back and say, oh yes, that, that generation was clearly wrong on slavery or that generation was clearly wrong on children working in factories or the generation of the crusade, that was clearly a bad idea. We can clearly see what is wrong in other generations. But because we are chronological snobs, we never take the time to ask what is wrong and inconsistent in our generation. You see, we assume the past is always wrong and we assume that the present age is always correct. This is especially true for Westerners. As Westerners, we have this built-in assumption that human progress is always going to make things better. But that's not always the case. <clears throat> there have been numerous times throughout history when, when people thought that they were on the side of scientific and philosophical progress, and yet their progress caused some of the greatest tragedies in the world. The, the, the communists were the progressives that were looking to evolve the world through science and government to become a more equal and fair world. And yet now we look back and say, well, that was clearly wrong. The progress was not good. You see, not all modern progress is actually progress because every generation has blind spots. There are things that we believe today in 2022, Detroit, Michigan, there are things that our culture is assuming today that future generations are gonna look back on us and judge us. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we need to apply the same critical approach that we take to history and apply it to the words and assumptions and text of today. And if you actually do that, if you actually discern the text of today, you'll see that the modern day texts are actually very, 
inconsistent. And you ought not build your life upon the words that we are hearing today. Think of a a college professor who teaches Darwinian evolution. So in the Darwinian text, you'll learn that there is no design to life. All of life is an accident. There is no meaning. Life boils down to survival of the fittest, that the strong should live and that the weak should die off. That is how the human race is actually going to get stronger. And yet across the board, all people would celebrate a firefighter who runs into a building to save a child who is stuck in a wheelchair. But if you you actually believe in Darwinian evolution in this meaningless world, that firefighter should never enter into that building. The weak should die, the strong should live. The entire social justice movement is built on helping those who do not have voices. So again, you see, we have these very inconsistent cultural words that are not making sense. Carolyn Fleur Loban was an 18th century anthropologist. She was also a feminist. And the, the cultural text, and so the rules of being an anthropologist are that you are never to impose your val- values onto the culture that you are studying. That, that's just, that's the word, that's the definitive text that you are to follow. And yet this woman as a feminist was, was greatly troubled when she began to study tribes in Africa that treated women very poorly. Because as a feminist, she had this conviction that women are to be brought to an equal place in the world as men. And so which text is she supposed to follow? Again, these are the different kind of things that we hear all the time. All cultures are equal. We should not impose ourselves on others. And yet, there is a thing called right and wrong. So in her own words, she's not a believer, she said, if all cultures are relative, then so is the idea of universal human rights. So how can I decide to impose my own rights on the culture? Deep down, she knew that she was inconsistent. Most famously now, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling is most famous for writing the Harry Potter books, but she is also a well-known feminist. And as a feminist, J.K. Rowling has concerns with this new modern-day concept that gender is not assigned at birth. See, if gender is fluid, then there is no biological grounding for what is a female, meaning the entire feminist movement falls on its own head. So J.K. Rowling, who is a very proud feminist, is now under attack, not by the conservative right, but by the liberal left. You see, see, the the words of the culture are telling us that women matter, and yet there's no substantive grounding for what is even a woman. Can there be a feminist if there's no female? Can there be male patriarchy if there is not a thing called male? It is very confusing, to say the least. All these different things that we are hearing in 2022, things that we are just taking in, all these words, all these texts, from very smart people, and everybody is just assuming as long as it is done in the name of progress, it has to be true. But nobody is slowing down and asking the question, is what I am hearing actually true? Does this actually make any sense? Do these various words, these cultural texts that are coming together, do they actually come together consistently? Are these words that I want to build my life upon? 
And yet people are taking in all these words, the name of modernism and the name of progress, and the result is we have a very inconsistent and confused culture. And all that leads to our second point, that Psalm 119 teaches us that there is a better, more consistent, trustworthy, living word by which we are to live by. The word of God, as we see in Psalm 119, teaches us that there is a much better word that we can build our lives upon. The good news of Christianity is that while the world is increasingly inconsistent, the good news of Christianity is not just that there is a God, but that there is a God who speaks. Have you ever thought about that? It is possible that there would be a God, but he would be distanced. But the good news of Christianity is that there is a God and he speaks to us. And he speaks in words that we can understand. He actually condescends to us and gives us words that we can understand. And as the Apostle Paul teaches us, the word that he speaks is so close to who he is as a person, Paul actually calls it the breath of God, that these are God-inspired words. And these words are so close to who he is as a person that his words are actually the means by which he works. So if you hear God's words, you're actually being worked upon by God himself. Think of all the great events in the Bible. Whenever there is new life that is brought into existence, it is always through the power of God's word. He speaks and things happen. So at the very beginning of time, the world was empty and void, and then God spoke. God said, let there be sun, and let there be moon, and let there be fish, and land, and let there be men and women. God spoke, and that is how the universe was created. In the book of Ezekiel, you have dry, dead bones, and then God speaks, and the bones are brought to life. In the gospel, the world is dead in their sin, and then God speaks the word of his son. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The gospel itself is an expression of God's speech. Jesus right now is upholding the universe by the word of his power. God's word is far better than what the culture is offering to us, and God's word is actually the means by which you are being formed as a person. In 2015, there was an article in the New York Times titled, Bedtime Stories for Young Brains. And the gist of this article is what many parents already know today, just that the more that you read to your kids, the better. Just kids need to hear a lot of words. And so you just, you ought to be reading to your children all the time. But what was very interesting about this study is that these researchers were scanning the brains of these children as they were being read to. And as they were being read to, the part of the brain that lit up was the visual side of the brain. Here's the line from the study. It reads that children showed significantly more activity in the areas of the brain that process visual association even though the child was listening to a story and could not see any pictures. Now, as a, a Presbyterian 
that study just delights my heart because faith comes by hearing. I mean, this is actually extremely Protestant research that these children learn to see through hearing. You see, when you hear words, those words are actually working on you and shaping you as a person, shaping how you are going to see yourself, how you are going to see the world, how you are going to see even God. And so if you are taking in words that are empty and inconsistent and godless, then you are going to see the world in categories that are empty, meaningless, and godless. But if the words that you are hearing are consistent and alive, if they are the words of God, then those words are going to form how you are going to see the world and you're going to see the world for how God made it to be. That's how the word of God works. That you, as you hear from God, you are being shaped to actually have the eyes of faith, to see yourself and to see the world as God made it to be. That's why the psalmist here in Psalm 119 is so enthralled by God's word. He just can't get enough of God's word. C.S. Lewis again describes coming to God's law, to God's word as the feeling of leaving a bog and standing on solid ground. Think of walking through a marsh. It's, it's swishy. You, you never know where to put your foot. You're always afraid if you're going to twist your ankle, if you're going to fall down into a hole. It's, it's all very unsure when you are walking through a bog. But then when you leave the bog and you stand on solid ground, it feels right and it feels sturdy. And that's what it's like when you leave the words of the culture and you come to God's word. You say, yes, this is solid. This is right. This is something that I can build my life upon. That's why the psalmist says in verse 97, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. There's a sturdiness to it. There's a structure. There's a framework that you could base your life upon. God has spoken. And because God has spoken not just to one generation, but because he wants to reach all generations, his words are recorded down in this book that can be passed on from generation to generation. It is the word of God, the living word of God in a book. Live by it, run to it. Notice what is the very first way that the devil wants to tempt us? Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. The Garden of Eden, everything is right, everything is good. Adam and Eve are right with God. And the very first thing that the devil says to Adam and Eve, did God really say that? You see, that's always the devil's strategy, is to get you to doubt what God has said. And he has not let up on that strategy. That is still his strategy today, whispering into our ears. Now, now, did God really say it that way? Did God really say that you need to repent? Did God really say that you are to be sexually pure? Did God really say that your finances belong to him? See, as soon as you begin to entertain those sort of questions, you are leaving the living words of God and compromising and taking in the words of the culture. If you're a Christian here this morning, especially if you are a brand new Christian or if you're one of the young adults that even just professed faith, This is something that you need to settle in your hearts 
right now. There is no doubt that the church is in store for a very difficult 10 years. And the entire weight of the culture is going to be screaming at you, did God really say it that way? And so you need to settle in your hearts right now. Am I sticking with God's word or am I going to open the door for something else? It is going to be hard. You are going to be the minority. Many of your friends are going to accuse you of very terrible things that are not true if you stick with God's word, but you need to settle in your hearts. Right now, I am sticking with the living word of God and nothing else, because God's word is the consistent voice. Think of all these different inconsistencies that we see in the culture. The culture wants to give us a, a text, a word that we are to love all people, and yet we are supposed to be angry at injustice. But again, all they have are inconsistent categories. But in the word of God, we see that through Jesus Christ, who is the word of God in the flesh, that Jesus is able to offer free grace and free forgiveness, even to his enemies, because Jesus took credit. Sin was imputed to him on the cross. See, in God's word, these inconsistent categories actually meet. See, in the culture, there's all sorts of words about how to be the better form of you and to succeed and do whatever you want in life. But then as soon as you achieve, everybody is trying to tear you down. Don't want people in power. See, the word of God actually gives us the means by which we can grow into better people. And we can actually become generous people, not because we are forced, but because God's word is actually changing us into generous people. See, the culture provides words of morality, what to do and what not to do. But can there ever be a morality if there's no transcendent truth that governs what morality is? But God's word gives us the transcendent truth. See, what you need so desperately in your life is God's word, and that is what we see in Psalm 119. It is the longest of the Psalms. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. You probably read a little bit too much into that, but perhaps there is something to it. It is long because God really wants to get it across in our hearts and in our brains that God's word is what we need, that God's word is absolute, rock solid, breathed out by God, certain, and it is trustworthy. It has been written down for us in a book. There are, of course, plenty of reasons for why we are to trust God's word. There are more manuscripts in the Bible than any other historical document by far. And so Homer's Iliad, I don't know if you remember that from high school literature, Homer's Iliad is the second most reliable historical book we have. And we have under 1,000 manuscripts for Homer's Iliad. For the New Testament, we have 25,000 manuscripts found over three different continents. If you take out things like grammar errors, they are 99% saying the same thing. And the 1% where they aren't, they are not touching on any sort of area of Christian orthodoxy. The Bible is by far, God's word is by far the most historically accurate book that we have. Think of this, the authors of the Bible spread out over thousands of years are all saying the exact same thing. Think of Jesus. Many people say, I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe in the Bible. But if you look, Jesus is using the Bible all the time in his ministry. If you believe in Jesus, 
If you want to take Jesus at his word, then you will have to believe in the inspired word of God that Jesus believed him. And so there are plenty of academic reasons for why you are to believe in Jesus or believe in the Bible. If you have any questions about that, I would love to meet with you this week for lunch. But here would be my encouragement before the academic questions. My encouragement to you would be just get into the Bible. Just start reading it and let his word do the work. So so many people just want to, to study the Bible as an ancient text, but the Bible does not claim to be an ancient text. The Bible is never saying, study me as an ancient text. The Bible is saying, study me as the word of God. Study me as a living document. And so my encouragement to you would be just get into the Bible, not to study as an ancient text, but to see if you can actually hear God in it. Look at what all that God's word claims to be here in Psalm 119. In verse 98, it says that God's commandments make us wiser than all of our enemies. You see, all enemies are relying on inconsistent cultural words. Therefore, they have no wisdom. But God's word makes us wiser than our enemies. Verse 99, it says God's commandments provide more understanding than all the great teachers. So yes, you can go off to a great university covered in ivy-covered halls, and there will be lots of great common truth, common grace truth that you will learn there but you will still not be as wise as knowing God's word is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Go to God's word. Psalm 119 verse 100 says that God's word makes you smarter than goes beyond even your own age. Verse 105, very well-known verse, that in this very dark and very confusing world in which we live, God's word gives light to our path. Like a nightlight in a hall, God's word shows us the way forward. See, as you walk through life, you need a guide, and that guide is God's word. So do not ever, ever, ever underestimate what you have in your Bibles. All the different words of the culture are insufficient and confusing at best, likely even worse. But the good news is that God has spoken. He has given us his word, and it is precious. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us, that you have spoken in words that we can understand. We thank you that you have spoken throughout the generations and that your words have now been recorded to us in a book, the Bible. We give you thanks that the Bible has been translated into English. We give you thanks that it is very easy to find Bibles, likely Many of us have a number of Bibles on our bookshelves and on our phones and on our computers. Oh Lord, what a blessing it is to have your word. It's not enough just to have it. We want to put it to good use. And so Father, make us a people of the book that love, delight, read, cherish, memorize, internalize, meditate on all that you have said to us in your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.